All right. Well, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have our special guest, David Bruce, on today. Uh, David is originally from Oklahoma, but his story uh, has a, a, a pivoting moment in Moscow, actually, uh, where he became a Christ follower in uh, the early 90s. A few years later, he met his, his uh, wife, Cece, in Stockholm. Uh, they have two kids together. But uh, after, after some time and, and kind of his own personal formation spiritually and dealing with some of his addiction issues, uh, David embraced you know, kind of the recovery aspect of his life, and uh, so much so that he went to school to become a therapist. Uh, he he actually is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He has been since 2008. Uh, he works in a clinical recovery program as well, working with addiction medicine. He's been doing that for 15 years. Uh, and then on top of that, him and his wife serve uh, part-time in the ministry in Los Angeles. Uh, he specializes in chemical behavioral uh, addictions, depression, anxiety, and couples therapy. So he is a man of many talents and hopefully is going to help us all fix ourselves and figure it all out. So David, <laughs> good to have you here with us and Christian. Thank you, Elias. Please. Um, so let's just jump into things. Uh, maybe you could let's just kind of give us a, a little bit of your spiritual journey and uh, and how you became, you know, a therapist, and how how your spiritual journey led you to even kind of entering into that field and that specialty. Well, great question. Um, it is a crazy story. Yes, like you mentioned, I'm from uh, the middle of Oklahoma, the Bible Belt of the USA. But uh, I think growing up in that context, I became a little cynical of Christianity, and. Um, yeah, it was actually, um, I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in 1988, and uh, I was absolutely stunned by a country that seemed to have little, but uh, also valued things in a different way than I was used to here in, uh, you know, plentiful America. I felt like people valued relationships and other things more uh, than material things, simply because there wasn't a lot of material things. So that sort of like stir stirred my interest in um you know, going back to Russia, living there, and then uh, it was actually through Russian literature and reading guys like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky that I really started to uh, develop my interest in the Bible again, started reading the Bible. I found out that reading the Bible doesn't necessarily make you uh, change your life very much, and so in 91, when I moved to Moscow, um, after living there for about four or five months, I got invited to church and uh, studied the Bible with some disciples there and um, understood for the first time that uh, the Bible can be more than just read, it can be lived out. And uh, that was a transformative moment uh, in my life. So uh, I was going to stay in Moscow for about a year and that turned into nine uh, just after that, after getting met and um, you know becoming a Christ follower. I decided God probably had some bigger plans there in Russia. So um, yeah, so life was radically changed then, and then back back in the late '90s, um, I started having just some uh, just some real frustrations and disappointments in life. I, I wasn't feeling really good about myself or about what I was doing or my work. And actually, ironically, this is when um, I uh, connected with Christian, and Christian just became uh, an incredibly uh, safe friend for me, who bore with me <laughs> and loved me uh, despite. <laughs> yes. uh, how miserable I felt about myself and many things around me. But uh, 
And that, that's when some of my addiction issues actually started coming back. Uh, you know, sex and pornography were issues, obviously, before I became a Christian. But then uh, just impurity just started coming back um, like a firestorm. And it was just, um, it, it was getting pretty alarming. And then we ended up moving to L.A. And when I got here, within a few months, I... Um, a friend of mine that I met in the church was starting one of the first men's purity groups. And I thought, yeah, I probably should check that out. And when I did that, I think that just really, for me, that was a second conversion. Um, I think definitely baptism saves you and it is a conversion moment, but I think I've learned since then that God has many, many conversions in store for us through things that we go through, things that we learn and discover. And, um, yeah, I think probably probably one of the things that really transformed me in that moment was this very interesting phrase that I learned in recovery, which was, emotions are a horrible master, but a great servant. And I think just the paradox of that statement um, just opened my eyes and uh, I think expanded my faith in a remarkable way. Because I'm an only child, so I think I learned growing up, you know, when you feel stuff, if you can just hide it or ignore it, uh, things eventually will be okay. Um, but things didn't eventually become okay by doing that. Yeah. And so I have, I often felt mastered by how I felt all the time, even though all of it was going on inside. Yeah. And so I think in recovery, I just learned that, wow, wait a minute. When you actually figure out what you feel and you can actually listen to it and pay attention to it and then express it, um, something pretty magical and transformative happens. And then that opened my eyes to what I've been reading in the Psalms for years. <laughs> Here's David, kind of knows what he feels and pretty much communicates anything and everything that he feels. And he seems to imply that God is pretty down to listening to whatever you're going through and how you feel about what you're going through. Yeah. And um, so I think that's where I just started realizing, wow, I, I've been sort of emotionally stiff or, or numb for too long. And um, yeah, it was like my Christian walk turned into color. It went from color from black and white. And uh, it's been, it's been quite a ride ever since. So oh, I love that. Yeah, I had a very similar experience, like after be, becoming a follower of Christ and then a few years down the road, went into a, uh, went through a recovery program and they had five emotions, uh, mad, sad, glad, afraid and embarrassed. And that was the first time I ever like identified emotions other than like I'm happy or I feel a little weird, you know, like, right. You know, I'm like in my mid twenties and I'm identifying and then it, it really did transform how I related to people and to God to be able to be in touch with some of those things and then communicate some of those things. I love what yeah. you said. Maybe you could unpack that statement a little bit for us that emotions make great servants, but horrible masters. Yeah, that, um, well, first of all, let me go back. You know, growing up, I definitely had my experience of many people around me who it seemed their emotions mastered them. Um, I, you know, I had certain adult caregivers whose anger was sometimes rather intense, and um, I remember paying attention to that as a kid, just going, gosh, I hate the way I feel around this person who's very angry. And I think as a young person growing up, feeling that awful feeling, I ended up making sort of the wrong conclusions that, man, um, anger is obviously a problem. 
And so let me try to do my best to never, ever be angry. So, you know, I became a very artificial person. I would, if I was angry, I just convinced myself I wasn't or said things or did things to imply that I wasn't. And, you know, here I am trying to not let anger master me. But at the same time, I was not allowing it to be a servant. I wasn't allowing it to inform me of, you know, when I'm a little frustrated, that may mean I need a I need to talk about a boundary or I need to identify something that's not so helpful that's coming into this interaction or this relationship. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, just the experience of emotions mastering others um, definitely gave me some red flags, but it didn't help me understand that emotions can also be helpful. Like, can anger actually be a good thing? Can that be a benefit? Yeah, can sadness be a beneficial thing? And, you know, the more and more I look through scriptures and um, especially the Psalms, um, lamentations, you know, grief is a really good thing. <laughs> it's actually, it is a process that's supposed to guide us through something. And, um, yeah, so even though it may be uncomfortable, just because something is uncomfortable does not mean that it is not beneficial. And yeah. I think that's what I started realizing is that all these weird things that I feel, they're not bad news. It's just something I need to pay attention to and be still and uh, and connect with God about those things. So so I have a question. I remember you when you were young and everything was black and white. Long time ago. You were a slave yeah. to your emotions. Uh, I'm just kidding, actually. No, none of those things were self-evident at the time that I knew you in Moscow when we used to hang out a lot. <laughs> but uh, I guess the question is this, it's, you know, you, there's, there's there's so many of us have that sort of that limitation that it seems it can become a very easy disillusionment with even the Bible and Christianity as a whole, right? Yeah. Uh, where you go, yeah. okay, I'm supposed to have this new life and I, I don't feel renewed. Mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. that I'm governed by my emotions or by uh, some sort of addiction. Right. Um, and I'm, I, I'm sincere. You are, I mean, one of the most sincere people I know, and I, you know, love being friends with you forever, right? So, mm -hmm. so even from the outside in, I remember, like, I wouldn't be able to to know that there's something fundamentally lacking in your journey. Mm -hmm. And I think many people uh, will probably encounter themselves in that in that space of inwardly having all kinds of sort of insufficiencies, right, limitations, outwardly. Mm -hmm. You can be a servant, a friend, a beloved member of a community, which you are, which you were, you know, in, in, in right. our space, for example, we served together in the same yeah. ministry. Um, and then, so you, I mean, the two things that, the two roads that I see is one is, okay, well, outwardly I'm accepted. I feel good. I have a lot of friends. I'm, I'm respected. I'm just going to sort of continue behavior modifications mode and sort of settle for it, right? Settle for for a better than before, but still in an insufficient or falling short from the promises of God journey. And you can do yeah. that for a while. You can white knuckle it for a while. But then how do you push through the discomfort, the, perhaps even the shame of really allowing your inward limitations be displayed to a safe space? How do you find mentors? How do you find the courage? How do you navigate your way uh, and, and basically not settle? I mean, and, and I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of people who have found themselves in, in that sort of space that they feel stuck 
and they don't want to leave Christianity or the church, but they also feel intensely unhappy and unsatisfied, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that history you just mentioned, Christian, was definitely an interesting one. Because when you and I were doing ministry together, uh, you're right. In one sense, it was it was the most remarkable season of my life in terms of ministry, and you know, studying the Bible with people and seeing lots of transformed lives around my life. I mean, I, that that definitely was a peak of my Christian life from one perspective. But like you said. <laughs> Little did people know that going on inside of me was this complete um, shutdown and nightmare. I mean, I I, I was really concerned. Uh, man, if I if I stay on this path, yeah, everything's looking good around me, but I think I'm gonna I'm going to decay <laughs> internally. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get worse, or I'm gonna become some horrible pervert, and I'm, I'll get kicked out of the church or something like that. I mean, I had some real concerns, but I think. Uh, the term that has really spoken to me lately that I think clarified what you're describing is someone used this term the other day called uh, churchianity, which is where, um, you know, church provides a place where you can share a set of beliefs with other people. Uh, you can also uh, share a form of belonging, you know, because we're together, we, we come together, we do things together, that kind of stuff. But then transformation is optional. And I think right. that really spoke to that season in my life, that I had a huge sense of belonging. <laughs> Man, I'm, people loved me and I loved them, uh, had really clear set of beliefs that I share with people. You know, you know, God is it and Jesus is Lord. I agreed with all that stuff. But this whole thing about transformation, I was not figuring out. And... Um, I would say the thing, Fred Rogers said this, Mr. Rogers is a very wise man, or was, he said, um, emotions that are mentionable are manageable. And I think that's really what has changed, is I've, I've started to create a, a church space where I have a number of individuals that I can mention, <laughs> whatever it is. I may be feeling, and then I can begin to manage it better. And then I think also, um, again, the model of the Psalms, I think David is is modeling that it is okay to mention anything that you feel, even violent, even aggressive, even depressing thoughts are okay to mention to God because emotions are relational. And if I don't mention or connect with you in terms of how I feel about stuff, it's less likely that I'm going to be really connecting with you. And I think that's where, um, especially in the Christian world, uh, I think one problem with Christianity sometimes is that it is a target-rich environment for developing codependency patterns, which is if you bring up a negative emotion that's uncomfortable, let me do my best to fix that right away so that you don't feel uncomfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and I think that can be very problematic. I think um, um, someone said that if you could summarize good parenting in a single word, this is a neuroscientist from UCLA, Daniel Siegel, who studied thousands of families in thousands of good, bad, and ugly ways about how kids have been raised by their parents. But he said, if I could summarize good parenting in one single word, it would be the word 
presence. Interesting. Not, not your social status, not how materially successful you are or how much you provide for your kids, but just the word presence. And I think that is exactly what God provides everyone. You know, perhaps we'll reach out to him because he is not far from each one of us. He, his presence is pretty amazing. And I think the more I've learned the value of God's presence, I've realized how important it is just to be present with someone when they're going through a hard time. And I don't offer a bunch of answers, but just to be present with someone, that kind of safety, <laughs> uh, I think, is incredibly transformative. But I think we do, uh, especially in our Western world, we're so uncomfortable with, quote unquote, negative emotions that I used to fix them by going to an addictive behavior <laughs> or some people go to a chemical to deal with that negative feeling. Um, but to actually lean in and allow our emotions to become a way of connecting better with God, better with one another and to gain some direction from our emotions, because the root word of emotions is motare, Latin, which literally means to move. <laughs> you know, don't, don't mess up this uncomfortable emotion, because it may right. be moving me in a direction that I need to go. Okay, so here's a question that I, I think is a practical question for, for many of us, right? So 2020, there's a lot of emotions. 2021, we're still feeling a lot of emotions, right? And Right. There's, you know, everybody knows this word triggered now, right? Like, I'm triggered, you're triggered, I'm triggered by the fact that you said triggered. Like, everybody's triggered by something. And we're feeling these emotions, and uh, and we're feeling them with the people that we're in community with, like our church or our family or our workplace. Uh, and those negative emotions come up, right? And you talked yeah. about kind of a codependence and how we deal with emotions. Um, mm -hmm. How do we process our emotions when triggered like that in, in, with other people uh, in a way that, that, that's still effective, right? Because you're, you're talking about being present, being open, being vulnerable with kind of transparent with what's inside, you know, you're sharing that right. with other people. Um, how, how does that work? Because maybe what I share with somebody is going to, trigger something in them and then they're going to respond. So how do we have a healthy environment where, where we can be present with each other, share those things, process all that we're processing um, right. and still not turn against each other or not kind of fold to the codependent interaction? Yeah. Well, I appreciate that word environment because I think the, the first environment that we got to take care of is the one right here. And, and, I'll, and I'll say this, uh, when we get triggered, thanks for bringing up that word, by the way, when we get triggered and we have a negative emotional response to something we hear or read or watch on social media, whatever, when we have a negative feeling in response to that, one way that we deal with our negative feelings is we distract ourselves with thoughts. In other words, I don't like how I feel, so now I start thinking more and more and more, and I think of a lot of thoughts, trying to somehow like move myself away from that feeling or distract myself from that feeling. And guess what? Now I have a flood of thoughts, which means now my environment here in my head is way off balanced. Hmm. Um, 
actually I brought my brain here to kind of exemplify this stuff. So if you can see the brain here, you know, all of our emotions come from this central area of the limbic system, right? And our rational, even our more spiritual brain or area of our brain, rational part, is the prefrontal cortex right here in the front. And the thing is, our brain has only so much energy at one point. So if my limbic system is hot, I'm really, really mad. <laughs> well, my rational brain is going to be deprived of energy. and It's going to be a little dull, which means I'm going to be very irrational if I'm really, really angry. And now I'm having a thousand thoughts all connected to that anger. So one way that I've learned um, that helps to regulate this really well is to learn to think less and just be present with how you feel. To have some curiosity about how you feel rather than reacting to how you feel. And one way, one mechanism, and it's hard for guys to hear this, but one of the things that I've done for many years now is just that whole process of journaling. Mm. Um, when I've got a thousand thoughts in my head, half of them probably don't make sense, but it's all swirling. <laughs> And as soon as the one makes sense, I grab three more that don't make sense. And it's just a jungle there. But when you're writing out your thoughts, and it's interesting that God chose a written word to communicate, writing things down, you can't go too crazy. <laughs> you know, I can't write 15 thoughts at one point, but just slowing down to actually write what I think or what I feel about a situation typically balances out those two areas of the brain. It's, in other words, the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex actually kind of work together when you're actually journaling and putting things into concrete terms. But man, when we're not doing that stuff, my brain is on fire and now I'm reacting to people around me rather than responding to them. So can I ask you this uh, for guys? You, you said it's sort of for guys don't like the journal. It's true, right? Um, I think women are more naturally tend to be more naturally connected to their emotions. Um, okay, what's a hack? What's a hack for a for a guy who just hates what you just said but wants to change? The life hack for for dudes. Okay, um, so I um, like I said, when we don't feel comfortable, we go to excessive thinking, which can often be less helpful. And we, get, we sort of flood ourselves with our own thoughts. So one hack that I've used for years now is turn whatever you're going into or whatever you're experiencing into a three to five word story. Okay. So, you know, if someone's having a bad day or whatever, I just say, okay, can you tell me the story of your bad day in like three or five random words? Now, think about that. All of a sudden, I've got this mess in my head. I hate 15 things that happened at work today, but now I'm trying to contain and put that whole experience into three to five random words. Okay? So then, after that person has written down or I write down these three or five words that summarize the conversation that I just had or... <laughs> the week that I've had. Now, we just kind of flesh out maybe all of those words or a couple of those words. So, you know, I had a guy the other day talked about, he said, um, 
you know, I think I'll just I'll probably make up half of it, but it was something like frustrated, intrigued, and done. <laughs> those are three interesting words, but then we we talked about each of those words, and then suddenly he is explaining and processing this situation in a much more contained, grounded, and authentic way. Because, by the way, if somebody gives me three or five random words that are all positive, you know, happy, cool, excited, wonderful, amazing, I, I can't relate very much to that. And I don't even know how real honest that is, because I don't think life is ever all positive. But I think it's, it's that's one hack that I've learned that has been really, it's actually fun sometimes. Like, I, I've done this exercise Tell me the five-word story of your life before you became a Christian. Write down those five words. And then tell me five random words that tell the story of being a Christian today. And, and just look at the difference in those two words. I mean, that, that is a great conversation starter right there, just to listen to somebody, uh, you know, flesh out maybe those five-word stories. But I think that's a really helpful hack that keeps the brain contained and balanced mm. when we're going. And I and I even think you could do this in the future. Like if you have a an event coming up that you're not looking forward to or a, a tough conversation, okay, well, give me three random words that you would love to use to describe that conversation if it goes reasonably well. And then, you know, maybe the words are honest, uh, grounded, and clear okay well now give me a give me a, an idea or a behavior or a decision that you're going to do that's going to help fulfill each of those three words so now you have action and behavior attached to maybe that word you're going to be going for to influence how that interaction goes or that situation it's great those are great practicals um Okay, so I'm going to ask a, a kind of a, a specific, nuanced question. Maybe it's not so nuanced. I don't know. So, in in that practice, right? Uh, you you're triggered by something. You're feeling something. You, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put put it into some words. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a conversation with another person about those words to kind of process it, right? Um, how do you safeguard against um, just living in your own echo chamber. And what I mean is we kind of already have that set up, right? Our, our algorithms on our social media pages and everything that we're listening to, it's, we kind of live in the, the echo chamber of our opinion. And, we're, and everybody in that echo chamber is triggered by the same things. And maybe our closest friends in, in our community, in our church or in our workplace or our school, we're all kind of triggered by the same things. And so now I go to process this with somebody and they go, yeah, that, you're right, man. Like that's, and they just kind of feed into this. Now there's this feedback loop that's actually affirming all these things that I, rather than helping me process it in a way that's, um, that's differentiated from, from what I might think, you know, that's offering an yeah. perspective. Um, I think that's available to many people, but there's a, there's a, there's a bridge to cross to kind of have that conversation with somebody who, you know, probably doesn't share the same feelings or triggers or, um, how, right. how do we, how do we make sure that we're, we're getting healthy feedback and perspective and, 
We're kind of living in reality and not just in an echo chamber of, of, of everything that we are already believing. Yeah, I, I, I love the other extreme that we're talking about because codependency is where we're fixing each other. Mm. Uh, but what I think you just described is how do we how we seem to be rallying one another. And and I think you're right. Uh, that can be a very dangerous game where um, I'm actually this goes back to that sense of belonging. You know, I'm really mad about that, what that politician did. Aren't you mad about what that politician did? And yes, I'm mad. And now we're elevating that limbic system. And now we're, we've got group reaction. Right. <laughs> As opposed to maybe, I like the word trigger again. Um, yeah, I think I, I can have a sense of belonging because we're all being triggered together in the same way. And I don't think that's really... If I go down the fruits of the Holy Spirit, I don't necessarily see a lot of those when I've got people just aligning with my triggering reaction to something. Uh, you know, not, not a lot of calm, not a lot of gentleness or kindness or love. And I think that's where um, I, I do think being still with how you feel and being curious about how we feel as opposed to just reacting with how we feel. Um, one acronym that I found this year, this is from some neurotheologians who, those are my people, man. They, they study the brain and they look at how the Bible really supports good brain, healthy functioning. And this acronym was CAKE, C-A-K-E. And the idea was, is that when someone triggers you, uh, number one, be curious about what they are saying. Okay, remain curious, kind of keep a little more open-minded as opposed to just slapping labels on it or whatever. Be curious. A, appreciate. So find something good about that human being, maybe even if just it's in the eyes of God. How does God see that person? What are valuable things about that person that I can appreciate even though I may not like something that they're saying or doing. And then K is kindness. You know, what is something that I can say or do that would make this person feel loved regardless of how I think about their, you know, political opinion or, or whatever? And then E is embrace. And what that means is, can I embrace that if I... If I can believe that this relationship, our dynamic, can actually be better, healthier, and closer on the other side of this conflict that we are having. Uh, I mean, just those four steps, to me, initiate neurochemistry in our head that is much healthier and I think much creates a very interesting pathway to follow the Holy Spirit I'm much more likely because um, when we're triggered, cortisol is probably the number one brain chemistry that's going on, the stress hormone, cortisol. Curiosity is actually a very different neurochemical. It's, it's really rooted in dopamine, which is what am I about to discover? What am I about to learn? What is about to become more apparent? And those are two very different mindsets. And I was just in a class yesterday where someone explained the, the issue with that word triggered is that when I say you triggered me or that article triggered me, 
it really allows me to put myself in a very comfortable victim position. Mm. You know, you, you did that to me. You, right. you triggered me. And this brother kind of transformed it a little bit. What if instead of triggered, we understood that as resistance? Meaning when I'm triggered, is my reaction just a way of resisting what the Holy Spirit may be wanting to teach or help me understand rather than just being mad and triggered and suspicious of what someone has said or what someone has written. Hmm. And, and I find that very interesting. And, and I, I took that really to heart because I realized so many things that I get triggered by, I get really energized by my anger or my you know, in indignation about what this person said. And I, right. I've thrown curiosity out the window. And there's no prospect of fruits of the Holy Spirit showing up in that interaction. So what you're saying is when we're triggered, we all just need a little bit of cake. Is that right? <laughs> we need a piece of cake, yes. I think you're, I think you're hearing that. I think yes, you're, hearing, you're reading into that. Yeah. That's what I'd like to <laughs> Yeah. I think your desire cake. for dopamine that comes from carbs that's is right. now kicking in. Carbs and yeah. sugar. Um, <laughs> that's sugar. it. That's it. That's some well, brain chemistry right there. That's right. It just kicked in. It got triggered when <laughs> talking about cake. Um, so I love that because, you know, it basically, it puts the onus on me. It say I'm triggered by something. It puts the onus on me to become curious. And I think that that's a, um, being curious and asking questions is like part science and part art form and a lot of relational wisdom. Um, yeah. how do we, how do we get better at just that practice? Like moving from kind of the, the victim triggered space to, okay, let me be curious about this. What, what kind of questions should we even be asking? What, what should, how should we endeavor into that? Um, for, first of all, that's, that's, the right re that's the right direction to go. Uh, questions. I find really helpful questions to be a great way to sort of invite the brain to go down a different path. So when I'm triggered by something, what is it that I may not fully know about that person or that group? that um, I, I need to keep in mind, okay? So what do I not know or understand yet? That, that's a good question. Um, also, um, what is it that has perhaps influenced that person to reach that position or that point of view? What, what types of things influenced that person that I may never know or understand? So in other words, instead of being so locked into a what a person did or said, to sort of get into a bigger, more um, open-minded perspective on that person. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of energy and tension around the Black Lives Matter movement. But uh, I was having this conversation with my son a few months ago. And in, I guess it was at his church service, they were talking about it. And I think the minister said, 
you know, Black Lives Matter, we can look at it as a political movement, but if you just take those three words, it's also a lament. It's a lament. And and I think this goes to a whole different ballgame, <laughs> is when we don't grieve properly, we are going to get overwhelmed with anger, or we're going to get shut down by overwhelming sadness. And I think lament is a very... Um, tender balance of those two emotions. When you feel mad and sad, you feel hurt. Um, and, and again, this goes back to what is mentionable is manageable. So if I can mention to someone what really made me sad or what really made me mad about something, chances are I'm going to be able to lament now with that person or someone can lament with me mm -hmm. if I can just have a conversation to talk about that. But when we don't do that, I think that's when, you know, political things can get really um, uh, unhelpful. And it just seems like a mad, you know, a, a mob of angry people. Well, hold on. Let me contain that a little bit. W what is the lament going on here? What is, what is maybe a hurt or a part of that person's story that I may not know yet, or I haven't heard yet. And I imagine that's the, the bridge, right? It's the empathy. It's the connection of, let, let me understand, yeah. beyond the, the trigger words or beyond the, the thing that I feel attacked by, you know, or whatever that is, let me yeah. understand what's, What's this person feeling? How are they thinking about it? How did they come to understand it? How are they right. processing it emotionally? How does that make you feel? Um, those kind of questions that you're, what you're really after is connection, right? Some, some. Exactly. And, and let me balance that out. Um, Cause what I, I taught this uh, when we were going through some of our social justice uh, lessons here in Turning Point. Um, just as I just said, Black Lives Matter is a lament. Well, guess what? Uh, Make America Great Again is also a lament. For, for, for some, again, this is where we've got, to, we've got to be able to transcend our thinking above political lines and really see where's the way that I can connect, have empathy and compassion, whatever pers a person's political view might be or opinion about something. And um, uh, I think Brene Brown explained, she defined compassion this is so good. She defined compassion, uh, looking at its original Latin roots, which literally means to suffer with. Yeah. Right? So, you know, God is the God of compassion and comfort. We, we really like the comfort part. Like, God, give me comfort. Give me relief. But hold on. He's also the God of compassion, which means when I think I'm being triggered... <laughs> Maybe it's me resisting God suffering with me. And is God still real, even though I may be feeling really uncomfortable or really hurt by something? Man, I, I want to have I want to know that God has compassion for me, that He wants to suffer with me. And when I experience that with Him, I think I have a much more likelihood to have compassion with you know, my brother, my sister, my coworkers, who may think radically different than I do about certain issues. So I love that you, you create, you sort of paint that picture of Black Lives Matter. It's a lament. 
make America great is a lament. I think you're absolutely mm -hmm. right about that. It is, is a, it is a primal cry. That's why it resonates with people, right? Yeah. And that's why it also, it, it also um, moves people emotionally so, so strongly and so many of them, right? So these are two mm -hmm. laments and they're not actually necessarily at all competing laments, but they're laments mm -hmm. that sort of rose to the top of the national conversation. Right. And yet at the same time, as anything that is sort of encompasses such a range of emotions of what that means to each individual person, it also turns into, you know, political things that we might not align with, right? right. So you might not align with make America great again on also so many different levels. And you want to respect the, the feeling that the real authentic thing that uh, arises um, in people's hearts, the same thing with BLM. So, so you have, to, let's say you have a hypothetical to people who are, I wouldn't even say these are polar things like BLM and Black, uh, and uh, make America Great Again. They just happen to be mm -hmm. big ones, right? I don't right. think they're necessarily uh, sort of again, one against the other at all, actually, you know? Um, right. But they were adopted by different sides, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes it a bit more polarizing. Now, imagine, I imagine in Los Angeles, as it is in Austin, as it is in Oklahoma, as it is in other places in the United States where the American conversation is taking place, uh, you identify there's a tribal affinity that starts happening, right? And, and the problem with that, I think, is that as our tribe, our, our affinity needs to be the, to the kingdom, this other affinity starts invading the kingdom affinity, right? This mm -hmm. affiliation. So, um, so a very practical question is, how do you, what, what is the place for, for individual conversations, personal conversations? How do you communicate? Hey, I, I, I can, I, I feel the compassion. I want to suffer with you in this thing that hurts, that pains you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't want to, I, I'm not, I don't have the political affinity. And can you, is that okay? You know, how do you communicate that? Because that's, I think, the idea of curiosity sort of feeds into that, I think, as well. Because, you know, like one of the things that we talk about is like, when I teach, I say, if you, if you, if you go into, if you're naturally trending in one direction, which all of us have a natural bend of one, or our origin story, um, cultural story, all of that influences the, the natural bend. Right. And if you, if you lean that way, instead of just immersing yourself in people who feel the same way, subscribe to a couple of pod podcasts that think the opposite, you know, read a couple of books. Um, yeah. But that's not a natural thing to do, I think, for people. I think it's much easier to agree with the people who agree with you and then sort of preach to the choir on Facebook and vent. And, and yeah. that, creates a, that creates cracks in the kingdom, sort of, you know. So what are some yeah. of maybe some, maybe like two or three practical things that you think uh, in your in your work, you've seen help people sort of keep yeah. the kingdom as, at the center, and then without really dismissing or minimizing mm. the some some of that some of that primal deep sorrow and lament that can take one one form or an, or another. Yeah, um, I, I would say one uh, first of all. I do agree. We have to be very careful when we start trying to have macro conversations about anything. Uh, I do think there is more power 
and more transformation when we are able to do this at the micro level. Uh, I can't have a conversation with a country. I, I'm not in that position. <laughs> I can't have a conversation with a thousand people. But man, every time I have a conversation with one or two or three people, my ability to remain curious without being flooded or without starting to feel <laughs> trapped into an identity or some other group behind me, uh, I think that is extremely important. And then the other rule that I use probably in every group, including at my clinic, one rule that we follow very adamantly, which has actually been hard to do with Christians actually, is speaking from an I, me, and my. Speak from your own personal perspective and experience. As soon as I start talking about us or we or they, um, I, I've, I'm now no longer moving toward genuine belonging, right? Because like I said, we, we're designed for belonging, but we sometimes want it so badly, we will subscribe to false forms of belonging. So yeah. gathering a thousand people that all agree with me and all hate the same thing, well, it kind of looks like belonging, but it's really not. We're just riled up about something and we're all scared of something. And I just don't think that's the type of belonging that transforms the world and transforms people. I think it's having more intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations, sticking with I, me, and my and also understanding the value of intimacy. And the way I define intimacy is when I'm having a conversation, I am, I am knowing someone and being known at the same time. If, if that is achieved in a conversation, I think then you have connection. And it's no longer about tribes and groups and political opinions and all that other stuff. I think that is the more human connection. So sticking with I, me, and my, um, well, let's take James, be quick to listen, slow to speak, <laughs> you know, making sure that um, what I'll often do is I'll actively listen to people. I mean, I do this all the time in therapy, but, you know, when someone says something, say back to them what you just heard him say. Like, I, I just heard you say that you've lived in this country, you know, for 40 years, and every time you get pulled over, you get asked if you have any warrants for your arrest. Mm. Wow. Brother, I've, I've never heard that about you, and it is shocking for me to hear that, and I've not had that experience ever. I mean, I literally had this talk just last week with a brother. I mean, I've known this brother for five or six years, and I never knew that about his life. But I, I just repeated back to him. So what I just heard you say was this. Mm. Wow. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that, was, that was a very um, tender moment with that brother, you know. But I think yeah, that's how yeah. we do it. We actively listen and speak from I, me, and I. So how do you then, I mean, that's, that's a very, uh, em, that's a lot of emotional labor, right? So, <laughs> right, if you think about it. Uh, it's yeah. much easier to just express hurt and shortcut all of that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's much easier to vent on Facebook or just to go to a place where everybody's sort of saying the same thing anyway, or speaking to flight. each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, how does that look like on a, on a, on a, again, taking it to the me level, right? Yeah. So, so it's okay. I hear, I hear somebody saying something in my community, in my church, in my, in my workplace. Um, does it mean you go, look, is this, is this, is the upside of this worth it for me? And I go, Hey, can I grab a coffee with you? Is that, is that what you're advising? Yeah. Obviously you don't can't do that at scale, but you can do that quite a bit if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Well, I, I would say it goes back to that definition of intimacy. What am I going for? Do I want to be agreed with or do I want to be connected with? Mm. And mm -hmm. and I think this is kind of what Elias was saying earlier. If I just want to be agreed with, um, I don't need to grab a cup of coffee with anybody. I can go to Facebook, social media, whatever. But uh, again, I think God has made us for connection, not conformity. And and connection does happen, I think, at that more micro level where, you know, vulnerability is never easy. I, I admire vulnerability, but every time I do it, it's a little uncomfortable. But I've learned that discomfort is often growth trying to happen. And that is a very difficult thing to say in the United States of America, where we don't elevate discomfort very much. <laughs> you know, we're, we're about right. the pursuit of happiness, you know, and all that good stuff. But I, I just think, you know, when I read the Bible and I look at Jesus's life, um, it wasn't a happy life. It was a, it was a full life, right. but it was also many moments of discomfort yeah. where God was apparently growing Jesus through discomforts that he went through. And I'm starting to believe that, you know what, the more curious I can be about my own discomfort, as well as discomforts of others, I actually may now be a part of their growth process. That's great. As opposed to, well, did I just get another guy on my team? Right. What, what team? <laughs> what right. team are we on? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, God created us, didn't create us, didn't want us to be happy, but he created us to be holy. Uh, there's no one in the Bible does it say you're gonna even you know you're gonna pursue your happiness and it's gonna be given to you. Right. Not on not on this yeah. not on this side of heaven. I don't think right. Yeah. That's right. That was never a promise. That was never a promise. It's, that got added along the way, you know, because we like yeah. to add it along the way. Um, yeah. Of 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 you know holiness is is it's a more painful process, right? Yeah. Uh, more more intimate, more personal. So, um, but you know, let me ask you this. So. I, I wrestle with, with, with this idea a lot, right? So curiosity begets curiosity, begets curiosity, begets curiosity. There's a cycle there. The more curious you are, the more sort of change you see and growth you see, the more, and then you become curious more readily because you've already seen it work. Right. Um, now, the other side of, of, of the spectrum where your even brain chemistry right is you are stressed you buy into the victim mentality because there is actually a lot of comfort in the victim mentality you have to take responsibility um you're safe you know in in uh, another strange way but you are yeah um you are a victim you are triggered you're in the triggered mode that begets more triggered modes and more trick because you start seeing the triggered in yourself, in other things, in other people. You start associating associating with triggered people. 
um, like I see that, and it's it's a major it's a major sort of riddle for me and puzzle for me. I puzzle about that. I go, I, I mean, it's clear. It's not uncomplicated, and yet it's incredibly hard to move someone from a triggered space, especially if that's a prolonged triggered space, to a curious mm. space. And yeah. what is that? What is that? What is the process? What are some of the things that you can do to wake somebody to another possibility, which is very uncomfortable and the transition is probably painful, right? Yeah. Well, um, well, when you say that triggered state, you're right. It is, um, when I'm in a triggered state, I'm no longer trying to thrive. I'm just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That survival instinct, uh, unfortunately, is very irrational. <laughs> it's uh, it's very difficult to work against or work you know work with, um, you know I would say one idea Christian to that point I, I'll borrow from couples therapy. Um, I I will never know whether a person's brain is too triggered or really ready for a conversation. So one one skill that I've given couples is never assume both brains are ready for the conversation. So make an appointment, make an appointment. So, you know, bro, I, I heard you mention something the other day, uh, you know, at church and, you know, it kind of bothered me and I don't think I fully understood it. You know, when would be a good time for you and I to just have a conversation about X, Y issue? Okay. By me asking that question for an appointment, I'm actually inviting the other person to do his own inventory <laughs> or we'll call it brain inventory. Like, okay, what would I have to do to get safe or to get grounded enough to just have a conversation with David about what I said last week at church? Okay. So uh, I just think, um, when we're not caught off guard, or um, especially if we're not reacting to something, I think being more intentional and, and setting up sort of a level ground for both people's feet in a conversation, um, that I think allows for a less triggered dynamic. But again, uh, this is the hardest part about the prefrontal cortex to follow, which is being intentional. Yeah making a decision to set up uh, this kind of conversation or this kind of connection with yeah. somebody not winging it. Well, David, this has been fascinating and extremely practical. Uh, I feel like we need to, I mean, we've been going for an hour. I feel like we need to have a part two at some point. We can, oh, wow. There's just, you're providing so many nuggets here. I think we could just keep talking, honestly. Oh, amen. I hope so. Yeah, but... You know, for, for people who want to know more, who want to learn more, uh, who maybe want to get in touch with you or, or stuff that you're you're working on or you're you're producing, how can they how can they go about that? Where can people find more? Well, uh, I'm a very simple man, uh, and I've got many hats, but I would say, uh, yeah, I've not come up with my blog or my website yet, but uh, just emailing me would probably be a great way to just start a connection. So, counseling at davidabruce.com is Best way to get a hold of me. Okay. 
Christian, maybe maybe you can help him out here, man. Maybe you can help him get a yeah, man. Like go in <laughs> or an old friend. Get to, we should spread the word, man. David Bruce, my old friend. There we go. I love you, man. Yeah, I'm so I'm so I'm so proud you too, of you and grateful for your work. And uh, 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 it's a, you're a remarkable human being. I'm 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 just happy to be friends with you. Oh, same here, brother. Love you much. Admire you so much. Thank you, friend. Thanks so much, David. Awesome. Elias, thank you, brother, so much. It's uh, I, I know you, you and I are a newer friendship, but man, I, I love connecting with you and so yeah. appreciate uh, just a few moments we've had to talk. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, forward to more. Thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Same here.